I need to know everything Who and the what and the where I need everything Trust me, I hear what you're saying But act like it's new what you're telling me I'm curious, George I hop in the Porsche with five and a horse I'm ready for war I'm coming for throws To turn to a ghost I need to know everything Hello and welcome to the In The Money Players podcast. Kind of, not really. Uh, I am your host, Jonathan Kinchin. This is not a normal edition of the In The Money Players podcast. Uh, The first part that's missing, obviously, is my good friend and co-creator and buddy and uh, the guy that affectionately likes to remind me that he plucked me from obscurity. Peter Thomas Fornatel is, is not back with you from the Brooklyn Bunker. But JK is here for the moment, Han Solo, which is one of my favorite uh, expressions to say, Han Solo, which is another word for being alone. But um, I'm here, and I am taking my maiden voyage on an idea that Pete and I have been tossing around for a while, and an idea that I'm excited about. I am extremely inspired and interested in, in, in a lot of different podcasts that are out there, uh, the main one, well, not the main one, but one of the main ones is, is Joe Rogan's podcast where he has on guests and, and they just talk for a long time and, and they just let the conversation go where it goes. Now, sometimes there's obvious questions that have to be asked and and conversations flow to a certain area based on uh, that person that you have on the guest's expertise. And, and, but I wanted to do a version of that, um, from a racing standpoint, but not asking uh, the typical questions. Now, look, it, it, it's hard at times. Uh, my guest today, uh, there's maybe a couple of typical questions, but I, my goal with this kind of uh, spinoff version of the podcast, which we'll eventually name at some point, if you have any good name ideas, I'm, I'm thinking something with JK, but I don't know what else to do outside of that. So go ahead and let me know what those are. But just to have conversations and in-depth without being rushed in an intimate way that doesn't involve, uh, you know, asking a trainer who's the fastest and best horse they've ever trained, uh, without asking a rider how did you get started in the game, without asking a rider who's the best horse you've ever ridden. I, I want to try to avoid that. We get that in other places, but I want to ask uh, different questions, more in-depth questions about who they are as, as people. And and I know that myself as a, as a podcast fan, I, I like to listen to uh, – people that I'm fans of on podcasts talk about themselves, their lives. Let me in a little bit. Let me feel like I know more about them, more about their background, more about their comedy, more about their music and where that kind of originated from. And so I'm hopeful that that's what this show will be. I've got pretty big aspirations for the types of people that I want to have on the show. Um, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and throw a couple people under the bus right now. Um, I'm, I'm excited to try to grab someone like Marshall Graham to talk about uh, his life and, and what brought him to the game and what brought him to betting and and uh, juggling uh, being an economics professor with being a father, with being a gambler, with being a horse owner and, and winning titles at parks and really just kind of getting in depth with that. But then also just talking about, you know, Marshall's favorite experience going to a football game. I want to do the same thing with uh, Duke and Paul Matisse, with people like Mike Maloney, Sean Borman, um, you know, Bloodstock agents, riders, trainers, valets, uh, starters, announcers, gate guys. I, I, I want to grab everyone who is surrounded in the game of racing and, and, and have, you know, some typical questions that we all want to know and that we're interested in, but also just have open conversations, long form conversations. 
And none of these episodes are, are, are going to be shorter than an hour. Uh, I'm not interested in doing a, a quick rushed version and, and I'll only, um, at least for the time being, I want them to be longer than, than, than an hour. So, um, hopefully we'll have a video aspect sooner than later. We're obviously in a interesting situation in the world right now where that's not available, but, uh, you know, we'll, 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 I mean, I could have done some Skype video stuff, but I, I mean, I think everyone's zooming enough that they've got their, they've had their fill of that. So, um, look. Let us know if you have people that you, you want, you, you hear this interview today and you, you let us know if you, if you, um, if you have any ideas of some people you'd like to hear, some people that would be fun to have on in a, in a similar, in a similar setting. So I guess I'll stop rambling and, um, do that funny transition thing that clearly illustrates that I recorded this part after the interview and now I'm going to toss it to the interview and hope that it doesn't sound awkward. All right. So for my first guest ever, and I don't even know what I'm calling this thing, but uh, I guess it'll, it'll, it'll come up with a name at some point. Um, my first guest ever is, is a guy that I've been fortunate enough to, uh, to get to know and, and I can call a friend now. And, and as someone who started off as a, as a racing fan, this person was a was a, a racing celebrity that was very far away from me that I, I didn't ever think that I would have intimate conversations with. And, and, uh, and, and like I said, consider a friend. So I'm happy to welcome onto the show, uh, my friend, the hall of famer, Gary Stevens, Gary, what's going on? Uh, JK sitting in the backyard, uh, here in Los Angeles, enjoying some sunshine. Finally, we've had about 10 days of rain. It's been miserable. And, uh, going to be 80 degrees today and and it feels good just sitting outside and feels good talking to you brother uh miss you uh get to see you a couple times a week on the tv screen uh back and forth with each other but uh i think uh if you're like me boredom sitting in a little bit and just trying to occupy my time brother yeah, I mean, I'm from a little bit of a different generation, so I can play video games to kind of help uh, ease <laughs> ease the pain. <laughs> but that's real nice, real nice. I, I can I can do some video. I got some uh, Guitar Hero. I can still get after a little bit. That's about as far as I'm going. But uh, yeah, uh, a lot different generation, bud. Gee, about how long have you actually lived in California? I mean, I know a majority of your career you you were you were in California, but I mean, what's your? I mean, I'm sure you were in and out. What's your total haul in in, in Cali? God, you know, I, I came here in 1980 when I was an apprentice, and I, I spent uh, time with Chuck Telefero, who started uh, Steve Cawthon uh, and Cash Ashmussen. So pretty good company I kept there uh, <laughs> with those two guys. And I, I stayed down here. For, I, I just turned 17 years old, uh, dislocated my shoulder wrestling, and, and that, was my, that was my life. I had three full rides offered to me my junior year and I'd already ridden uh in the summertime of 1979 when I was uh, in between my sophomore and junior year and I loved wrestling I loved race riding better and um when my shoulder healed up I had about a half a semester left of my junior year and I loaded up my things and came to California uh stayed in uh that Motel 6 right on the uh, Colorado Boulevard on the other side of uh, Santa Anita Racetrack. You can see the grandstand from where I was staying. And there were no phones in the room. Uh, there was one pay phone. And I'd left a girlfriend at home. And, and uh, I, I got really homesick. And my old man, he told me, he says, you're not leaving until you win a race. 
and we we started it at Hollywood Park summer meet, and uh, I ran 22 seconds, could not win a race, and Sandy Holly went down early in the day. Horse made the gap with him, and and he had to take off his mounts and. Larry Sterling put me on a horse, a pickup mount, uh, waved the bug and put me on and, and uh, wound up winning three races in two days. And I loaded up my car at a 79 Trans Am with a big orange bird. It was a limited edition. I was living large, but I was homesick. And, and uh, I jumped in that car and I, I headed back to Boise, Idaho. Um, came back here. Uh, to, to Los Angeles in 1984 in October of 84 after I set a new riding record at the old Long Acres race course in Seattle. I bought five acres, hired an architect to uh, plans for a house and, and I just came down for a winter vacation. Actually, I had uh, three big outfits from Seattle with horses that had conditions and uh, looked like we could have you know a, a decent winter. And uh, it turned out to be more than a decent winter. And that, that vacation is still going on, still going on here in, in 2020. So uh, I've been here, had a home in, in Los Angeles uh, since 1984. So, gee, like, let's say like uh, 84, 85, 86, about, you know, and I don't want to get into later in your career, but like 84, 85, 86, what kind of money were you making a year back, uh, back in those days? <laughs> Crazy money, uh, especially the 90s. When early 90s, we were basically uh, racing for more money than what they're running for in Southern California now. And it was five days a week, uh, six days at Del Mar. And it, it, it got to the point where uh, it scared me. I didn't even want to look at my paychecks and, and know what I was bringing in. Um, because it was it was intimidating. I mean, when you when you draw a check uh, for five days' work of eighty thousand uh, dollars, back when a dollar was kind of a dollar, uh, it it was a crap load of money for for a young guy with. And I had uh, had three kids already in in my early twenties. Uh, started early. Uh, they're all raised and all four from, uh, my first marriage with Tony. I've got, uh, Ashley, TC, uh, Riley and Carly and, uh, got six grandkids and, and one on the way. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I met yeah. one of those, I met one of those jokers and he, he's the, the most perfectly named kid I have ever seen in my life. The young man's name is trip and he is a trip. <laughs> Very funny little guy. Yeah, yeah uh, he is. Trip is a trip. He's he's well named. Um, he just uh, on Easter, uh, just here a few days ago, we were FaceTiming and and God, he's growing up like unbelievable. And and he is a little man. He's uh, five years old and he loves his grandpa. Uh, got to spend all summer with him up in Saratoga when we were doing the shows up there last summer and that was the first time I got to spend a lot of time with uh TC Jamie and, and my grandson Trip and and Jamie actually she is uh, uh Nick Zito's uh stable agent uh banker <laughs> you name it she does it for Nick she's been with Nick for about 14 years and uh and and 
Nick is like uh, his trip's third grandpa. He's at that barn and, and uh, he's, he loves the horses. He loves the racetrack and uh, it's, it's pretty cool. Gee, you know, you mentioned just getting some of those big checks back in the day when you were younger. What's, you know, what's, what's that one dumb thing you bought? And you're like, damn, you look back and you're like, I cannot believe I bought this ridiculous thing. Do you, do you have that one thing that sticks out to you? No, I had a lot of things. Uh, my, my bad habit that I've, I've had, uh, since I was 14 years old is cars. Um, I think we counted up 92 cars I've owned, um, since I was 14 in Idaho, we could start driving when during daylight hours only at age 14, go through driver's ed. And, and, um, I remember I, I bought my first car when I was 13, a year before I could start driving. I bought an old, uh, 63 VW bug, um, and, uh, I couldn't drive it during the summertime cause I didn't have my license yet, but. Uh, a guy, my dad's foreman at the at the racetrack, a guy named Jim Bob Briggs, believe it or not, uh, he was my driver. I had a chauffeur, chauffeur when I was 13, uh, working as a groom for my dad and galloping some horses on the side and stuff. And uh, man, I, I went through some cars. I told you about the Trans Am I had. I, I had a '55 Chevy uh, pickup with a uh, '327. Uh, Corvette engine in it, uh, Hurst four speed, Holly double pumper. You you don't even know what a carburetor is, I bet. No, That's the of course generation not. you're from. No, <laughs> I know I know the wi- I know the Wi Fi password. I can help you if your Wi Fi goes down, but all that other <laughs> stuff is foreign to me. Um, Porsches, Jaguars, uh, even had a, a Buick tor- Tornado. Um, just the money I wasted on cars, and and I'm proud to say that uh, out in the driveway right now i've got a, a 2004 h2 hummer that i drove off the lot with uh, with four miles on it and it's it's got about 160,000 miles on it still purring like a baby and my last acquisition i made a, a, as far as a vehicle was uh i bought a f-150 uh, platinum back in uh what was it uh 2017 um when beholder was scratched out of the the breeders cup classic uh, matched up against american pharaoh and i got that phone call from mandela two days before the race and i anytime uh richard would call me on the phone it was never good news and i was just getting ready to go to keeneland pick up my credentials and i got that phone call uh, and it said Mandela and I looked at my wife and I said, this is not going to be good. And he said, uh, listen, buddy, he said, I'm sorry to tell you, but, uh, Beholder's got high blood count, uh, white, white blood cell count. Uh, she's sick and we're not going to make the race. And I guess out of depression, when I came back, <laughs> my breeder's cup just turned to shit overnight, uh, in an afternoon, everybody's did. And uh, we got back to Los Angeles, and it was close to Christmas time. So I told Ange, I said, I- I'm going to go look at, at new trucks. Uh, I was driving a, a Nissan uh, pickup that I like, but um, I went down to the, the Ford dealership, and, and I found the same. Before I walked out the door, she just came and handed me a check. She said, I, I know if you're going to look that uh, you're going to buy. <laughs> so... 
uh, I'd hydrated up a little bit before I went and, and, uh, yeah, I came home with a new truck and, um, that was, what the heck were, uh, you know what I, I said, uh, what year did I buy that thing? 2000, it was, it was 2015. I bought it in 16 at the end. So it was a turnover, but anyway, that was my last vehicle acquisition and, and, uh, wasted a lot of money on, on vehicles, but I had a lot of fun with them. We're, uh, I remember that. I actually forget now that, that she was supposed to run in that race, and, and it ended up being yeah. just kind of a kind of a ho hum race because no one else was really in there. I think F and X ended up running second. Do you feel pretty confidently that you you would have she would have had a good account of herself that day, or do you think that American Pharaoh was just too good on the day? She she was so much better uh, in in um, 2017. Was it 16 or 17? I, I, 15, I was, 16. 15 was Pharaoh because that's when he won the Triple Crown in 15. And so that so, that that, uh, that race was 15. Yeah, it was 2015. So um, we got lucky with the with the draw. Uh, the same as we got lucky against Songbird drawing the outside. I drew the outside post and she she was doing so freaking good, man. Uh, Dick had that bounce in his step and and it was kind of weird because uh, Richard, he, he's really easy to read. He's like a, a good racehorse. When they're doing good, going, they, they'll tout you uh, of how they're doing. And, and Richard would always kind of tout me just by his mannerisms. He'd have a bouncing step and telling jokes and this and that. And I'd gone by the barn uh, three days before the race. And, and it was the day before he called me up. And, and he was he seemed weird. He just uh was not very attentive and like his mind was somewhere else and, and I was getting bad vibes and that's why I was getting the bad vibes but now when we drew the outside we had a game plan I was gonna write her pretty much how how I did against Songbird I I was gonna put it to him early but I, I was gonna make him have to go and I was gonna use him as my rabbit and attack him and listen he he was he was a superstar man uh and and I don't want to say that I would have beat him or we would have beat him, but we damn sure would have made him run faster than he ever had to run. That's how good she was doing going into that race. Yeah, no, that would have been, that would have been a, a ton, a ton of fun uh, to watch. You know, one of the things, gee, I've always been like super interested. I mean, I love like hanging out with you and, and hydrating and just asking you all kinds of fun questions. One of the things I've never really had a chance to talk to you about is like how that whole experience with, with acting, you know, with Seabiscuit and, uh, and, and all of that stuff. And, and, you know, how did that, how did all that go down? I mean, did, did someone come to you about it? Did you guys, I mean, did you, I'm sure you didn't have to audition for it. I mean, how did all that unfold? Um, sort of a funny story. Uh, I'm not a big reader, uh, of books unless something just really catches me in the first couple of pages. I was the, the kid that in, in school, you know, if I had to, write an essay or something on a book that, that I'd written, uh, read, then I'd read the first chapter, the middle, uh, the index, the, <laughs> and, the, and the last uh, chapter of a book, and, and I could get away with it. You know, I could write something up. But um, I was flying to New York, and in the book, Seabiscuit by Laura Hildenbrand, um, had, it had been out for a while, and everybody was talking about it. It was kind of the rave, and I was at the airport uh, catching a red-eye flight to New York, and uh, went into the uh, newsstand and, and I bought the book, uh, hardback and 
Um, I think left at 11.15 at night and uh, flying into JFK. And I started reading that book when I sat down and I never slept. I, I read half the book flying to New York, uh, six hours and change and uh, five and a half hours, whatever it was. And I got to the jocks room and I went in the sleeping room and I slept for about four hours uh, straight off the plane. And I was catching a flight out back before we had TSA and stuff. You could ride the last race and and make the 645 flight back to Los Angeles. So jump back on the plane. I started reading again. And I finished that book, uh, you know, within 24 hours. And, and that's something I'd never, never done before. I was just enthralled with it. Uh, so I'd heard rumors that they were going to do a movie about it. Sorry about that. That's my watchdog, Anya. Uh, now the choir is going to start singing. The whole neighborhood's going to start barking. <laughs> Don't start, Ted. <laughs> Sorry about that, Jake. It's all good. So, it's all good. Anyway, uh, yeah, I heard rumors that they were going to going to do a movie about it, and uh, Chris McCarron was involved uh, with directing them in the right uh, right direction. So uh, it was Santa Anita Derby Day. And uh, Chris McCarron came in, introduced me to this guy. I was uh, I was in the jockey room kitchen getting a cup of coffee just prior to the first race, and Chris introduced me. He said, "Hey, this is uh, Gary Ross. He's going to be uh, directing Sea Biscuit." And I said, "Nice to meet you." I I was pretty preoccupied with the day I was going to have, and that was. Uh, that would have been point given in 2001. Um, and uh, so anyhow, uh, it's nice to meet you. I walked back to, to, and the way Gary tells the story, I swaggered back over to my locker. And uh, I thought I was going to win about six races uh, that day, no less than six. And I had a bunch of seconds early on. And then, uh, Road point given and and he galloped and uh, but I I wasn't very happy with the day believe it or not um, I was disappointed in in a couple of my rides so I come back in uh, to the jocks room after the last race and got undressed I put my robe on cracked open the Coors Light and as I do and I'm headed to the shower uh, with flip flops on and the and the blue bathrobe with GLS on it. And, here comes Gary Ross walking over to me, and he said, uh, hey, Jack, he said, what do you think about being in this movie? And I said, you know what? I said, I really don't have time. I said, I'm making a lot of money right now, and I said, I don't really think you can pay me enough. I'm pretty busy. And I, and I in the back of my head, I just thought, man, here is going to be made another movie that is going to ruin the book. There's no way they can do justice to the book that, that I just completed. And uh, so I had a guy, a uh, good friend of mine over the years, uh, always had some horses uh, from the horse racing business, but he's also in the entertainment business. And he was doing uh, my endorsements and uh, all of my outside of the racetrack uh, marketing for me. And he's from the Hollywood business. He's uh, a manager. So 
he called me up and he says, Gary, he says, uh, did you have a conversation with uh, a guy named Gary Ross? And I said, yeah. And he said, do you know who he is? And I said, no. And he said, well, listen, he's with uh, uh, Frank Marshall and, and Kathy Kennedy, who, who produced, uh, they were the main producers of, of the, the movie. And uh, I said, what, what, do they want me for an extra or what? And he said, no, they want you to play George Wolf." And I'm like, really? Uh, so it was a month later and, and the night before the Kentucky Oaks and I was staying at the uh, Garden City, or excuse me, the Executive West, what is now the Marriott, right across from the airport there in Louisville. And they came and met uh, and we, we had some wine and discussed things and we shook hands that night and I said, I'll do it. Uh, but they told me I wasn't going to be able to ride uh, while we were filming. And things were, were rolling pretty good. Pre-production started in, in 2001 into 2002, and we started filming in uh, 2002. And uh, the deal was, is once we started uh, the speaking lines and stuff where, I, where my character was really involved, that I couldn't ride anymore, with the exception of uh, I could ride the, the Breeders' Cup Classic on Macho Uno uh, if I wore the, the uh, sort of jock pants and, and boots, croup boots, leather, that were actually in the film from, from that era in the 30s. And uh, so I got, the, I got to ride that one race that one day, and then I was off until uh, after, after we filmed and then I, I did all the European, uh, red carpets in, uh, London, uh, Switzerland, uh, France, Ireland. Uh, and that was sort of a, a kick, man. Uh, good memories, great memories, but I'm sorry I'm rambling on, but we got nothing but time on our hands right now. No, brother. no, it's so. good. I, I, uh, so I, I don't know if you've seen that movie, um, Molly's Game. Um, but it's about like that poker game that like that underground poker game that that girl kind of created. And, and there was this character that was like an awful character in it. And, um, they didn't say who it was, but all the speculation and all the things you read are that it's supposed to be Tobey Maguire. And Mm -hmm. so, which I was a little bit shocked. I didn't know that. Well, maybe it's not true, but I didn't know that he was that way. What what was your experience with Tobey? Did you guys get along or was he kind of a little bit Hollywood? How, How was your time with Tobey? No, no, uh, just the opposite. Uh, to be honest with you, is, um, Toby, with my experience with him, no, we, we got very close, believe it or not. I, I would, when we had a big scene to do together, I would go in, the big video guy, loved to play his video games, and he had this amazing trailer uh, that was just big screen TVs with all these video games. And he loves poker, by the way, that's, that's his gig, man. He loves poker, but he really keeps to himself. He doesn't, he doesn't trust a lot of people. Uh, you know, he's, he's had addiction problems at an early age and, and, uh, he's, uh, stayed sober all these years and, and he's genius. And, uh, he was extremely close with, uh, with Gary Ross, they had a, uh, and still do have an unbelievable relationship. Uh, but no, just a, a quiet, cool professional. Um, you know, I was, 
when I did, uh, when we did the scene, uh, the fight scene, uh, where he was boxing, uh, bare knuckled and he, he'd gotten messed up drunk and, and everything. And, um, Gary Ross, we, we filmed this thing like at two, two o'clock in the morning in, uh, in East LA in, in a bad neighborhood and, and stuff. And, um, it was, it was really long night. And before we did the scene and Toby was laying, laying down, uh, drunk on the ground and beat up and stuff. Gary said, I, I want you to put something in your, in your mind, man. Who, who does this remind you of? And, and shit. All of a sudden he became Chris Antley. So, uh, he was, Toby's a great actor. Uh, he could put you in a place that, that you didn't really want to be in, uh, as far as mentally, but, um, the comparisons with, with acting and riding races are very similar, man. I'm, I'm hard on myself. Uh, I'm sort of a perfectionist and, you know, if I thought I, I rode a horse bad, everybody always talked about my temper when I'd, I'd come back, if I got beat on one, I, I wasn't mad at the trainer. I wasn't mad at the horse. I was mad at myself for doing a, a stupid move during a race or costing myself a race. So the whole way I approached that, uh, and it, it kind of gave me my fix away from not riding races competitively was, Man, when you're on, when you're doing a scene with, with the likes of uh, William Macy and, and Jeff Bridges and uh, Toby McGuire, I didn't. I was the amateur, and I didn't want to be the guy that that uh, they said cut, cut, take two. I I wanted to be one take. Whether if a if a scene got screwed up, uh, as long as it wasn't my fault, I was all right with it. But if, if I didn't have my lines and I didn't have the right attitude or, or whatever, then uh, I wasn't very pleased with myself. And, and uh, so I studied hard. I, I worked hard and and uh, played pretty hard, too. <laughs> and, you know, and look, you, you, you talk about your temper coming back from the room. And obviously everyone knows the stories of of, of how riders settle, thing in the, settle things in the room. And I, and I know you've talked about some of those situations before did have you ever gotten into it with like a trainer afterwards where he blamed you and, and you guys got into into fisticuffs I mean I, obviously that would be something that probably wouldn't happen in the room but I just didn't know if you ever got into it with a trainer or not only uh only a couple of times and one of them I didn't really even get in, in, into it with him but uh Jerry Hollendorf for the first first year that he took a, a pretty solid string of horses to Del Mar uh several years back I was riding pretty much everything for him, anything he could get me on. And then we were just having no luck at all. And I'm riding a horse for him and let's say the Bing Crosby, it was a, it was a grade one. It was a big race. And, uh, I was, I was riding a tactical race and, and same ground. It was a comfort behind sprinter. And I got myself in a pickle coming into the stretch and I, I had nowhere to go, uh, without just banging my way out. And that there's, I, I wouldn't do that with cheap horses, let alone uh, a grade one. Two reasons. I don't want to hurt the horse. I don't want to hurt another rider. And I didn't need a suspension. Uh, that was always, you know, you, you had to think about those things. That's what a lot of people don't understand when you got the Kentucky Derby or 
or Breeders' Cup coming up, you, you start writing. Uh, I hate saying this, but I found myself, you, you tried to stay out of trouble just because you did not want a suspension. It was before the designated race rules. And anyhow, I, I should have been undressed and, and uh, showered and in the winter circle on this horse. And I wound up running a, a dirty fourth and, and never could let the horse run. And I came back and and uh, Jerry's standing, standing there waiting for me to come back. And, and he's got his, he's got his uh, sport coat. He's got a white shirt on and, and a blue sports coat hanging over his shoulder. And he's just glaring at me. And I couldn't do anything but start laughing. I, I said, I'm sorry, boss. And, and I said, what what'd you want me to do? And he, he took that jacket and he threw it on the ground and right in the, right in the dirt at Del Mar and uh, I got off the horse and saddled the horse and I uh, just walked all over his jacket as I was headed to the scales. <laughs> uh, so that was, that was about as bad as then. Uh, I got into uh, a little bit of a argument uh, with Richie Baltus here about, uh, I don't know, five years ago. Santa Anita, he had told me I was going to ride a horse. I didn't ride, wind up on the horse. And, and, uh, I, I did something I, I shouldn't have done. I, I grabbed him by the shirt, um, at Clocker's corner, uh, just at the gap actually in passing. He said something smart ass to me. And, and, uh, anyhow, Richie and I were, were good friends. My wife's very close with, with Richie and, and, uh, stuff. He's got a temper about like G Stevens. He doesn't like getting beat. Um, and, but he, he's a, he's a good horse trainer. Good, uh, just good, good horse trainer. Gee, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, I've, I've got to talk with you and, and, and know your stance now uh, about how you feel about gamblers and, and their importance to the game. But I would imagine there's probably a point in your career where, where, uh, you know, situations like you're talking about now, I, I mean, as a gambler, I probably would have been really mad at G Stevens that day, uh, and, and calling them all kinds of idiots for getting stuck on the inside and, what, what was your relationship uh, a majority of your career with, with the gamblers? Is it something that you always respected or, or, or did they wear you out to a certain extent earlier in your career? Where, where, where were you, where did you start? I know where you are now, but where did you start with the gambler? I, I personally, uh, I never was a gambler. Um, to be honest with you, I, you know, I was making so much money riding them and, and winning. Why would I want to risk my money when there's, a thousand ways for a horse to get beat and really only one way for a horse to win. And that's when everything goes right. Horses can stumble, leaving the gate. Jock can get in trouble. Somebody can fall in front of you. There, there's just, uh, for me, I mean, I, I'll, I'll bet my, you know, 15, $20. I've still got that 13 cents in the Naira account of which I get heckled about every weekend. I got to wait till we get back to New York before I can deposit any money. But, um, you know, I, to me, it was all about winning purse money. Uh, forget about the gambling and they, they, the betters are, are such an important, that's what our game is driven uh, by. And perhaps I was naive or pre- perhaps I, I just, uh, I had enough pressure on me without worrying about gamblers. I, I had some big time owners, Jack Kent cook. I, I mean, I, I can't even list all the great uh, people that I rode for over, over the years. And uh, I was putting enough pressure on myself and, Tell you a funny story. Uh, I had a guy that was heckling me all day long. I, I was having one of those days, and 
And this guy, he knew he got under my skin. We were at Santa Anita. And I told security, I always had a, a private security guard with me from, from the racetrack. And uh, uh, he was undercover, but he would walk back and forth uh, for going out for races. And uh, I'm walking back, I said, Louie, I said, this guy has been on my ass all day long. Well, they couldn't find him, couldn't find him. And after the last race, I get beat a dirty one. It was probably a maiden 32 cow bread or something. But uh, if I was riding that last race uh, on a cheap, cheap horse, they were usually very, very live. And so anyway, I get beat on this horse and I'm coming back and, and I'm under the tunnel. And there that guy is. And he starts in after me. I jump the fence. He takes off running under the grandstand, starts climbing the stairs, running. And I'm, and I'm hauling ass. And I tackle him. And I tackle him right before he got to the second mezzanine uh, of the clubhouse. I'm in my jock pants, helmet on and stuff. And I got this guy by, by the knees and right before he got up. I tackled him on the stairs. And and here comes uh, security, and they like, what? I said, this is him. This is the guy. And uh, I got in some trouble for that. But they, they, they have, I think they gave that guy like a two-week suspension or something. But, uh, you know, at Santa Anita in, in Saratoga, uh, those are really the only two places I can think of where you are exposed to the crowd. And, and we're talking about back in the day, Wednesdays at Santa Anita, they had 30, 35,000 people on, on weekdays and then 60, 70 on big days, some, sometimes 80,000. And uh, we're walking back through the tunnel and then through the paddock and, and the, the fans are passing. Um, and it could, get, it could get dicey, man, when somebody had lost their, their paycheck or whatever and they, they were hot. They were after you. And, uh, you know, I'd had... And an incident when when they first started the the pick sixes and and the pool started getting big, I think there was a big carryover. It was like on a Thursday, and uh, like once I would get up on the horse, there would be security, um, you know, in increments uh, headed towards the tunnel and through through the tunnel until you get get onto the racetrack, and so. <clears throat> From the jocks room of the first race I was riding that day, uh, I got Louie on my side and I got two other plainclothes uh, uh, security walking with me out to the paddock. I get legged up and they walk with me all the way out to the racetrack. I come back and I get off the horse and they're waiting for me, walk to the scale with me and we start walking. I said, Louie, is there something something I should know about. Is there something going on? Yeah. Uh, the stewards got a phone call about an hour before the first race. And, uh, they said they were going to have a, a marksman on, on the backside. If, if Stevens didn't take off his mounts, we're going to shoot him. And I go, really? Like, do you think I shouldn't have been uh, made aware of that? Uh, anyway, uh, I, I wound up taking off the rest of my mounts that day. And it obviously wound up to be a uh, a hoax or whatever, but that that's how far people will go. I mean, uh, and that's how big the game was. Like um, people were. I I I wish you could have been around, but like every day at Santa Anita was uh, was like every day at Saratoga. 
Uh, that's the thing I enjoyed most about being in Saratoga all last summer was, and, and being in the grandstand where the set was and, and just mingling with the people. I made so many friends last summer that, and I didn't know I had uh, as many fans and admirers as, as I do. And, and that was very humbling and, and uh, just a really special summer for me. Yeah, you're, you're a hard man to walk with if you're trying to get somewhere in a hurry. I learned that the hard way. We got off a set, and I was trying to head over to the secret spot to get a pick five in, walking with Gary Stevens. We had, I, I, gee, I'll meet you over there. He gets, uh, yeah. he gets stopped pretty often. Uh, another funny story, Gary, I'm sure you'll remember that I don't think I've ever told before, is that, uh, you know, Gary and I met the first time was when we were doing a show together at Churchill. And uh, we did the show together, and we had fun, and then, we kind of looked at each other at the end and we just kind of gave each other that look that we were going to have a beer. And, uh, and Gary knew all the tricks about how to get a beer when we were at Churchill after they were close. So he, he got us a beer. We hung out, we talked and I don't know, maybe a week or two later on our fourth or fifth show together, uh, we're reminiscing having another beer afterwards. And I'm telling Gary about this horse he rode and I can't remember the horse's name. And I pull the horse up. Barley sugar, barley sugar. And I pull the horse up in the PPs and the trip note says, you know, weak ass Gary Stevens ride, retire or something. And I showed it to him. And I was like, Gary, I swear I didn't write that. I swear I didn't write it. I, I think what the trouble line said is weak ass Stevens, old man, weak ass Stevens run off with again. <laughs> something to that effect. Uh, and and uh, I said, no, nah, that was, I, I laughed, Jonathan. You go, man, I'm sorry. I didn't write that. And I'm, I'm crying, laughing. I'm like, no, I love it, man. But what you got to know is that wasn't weak-ass Stevens getting run off with. That was old man Stevens saying, screw this. I'm not going to waste my energy pulling on this bitch the whole way around. <laughs> the whole way around there. <laughs> if, if I can save some energy for later on. But, uh, yeah, and the, and the other one was, I think that first day that we, we worked and we stood in the paddock and, and you told me, you said, I, cause I asked you, I I'd watched you the week before we hadn't met and, and it was, it was pissing down rain at Churchill. And, uh, I think you hit like five of seven horses that were prices of the seven races that we had actually on the show. And I'm like, who is this guy, man? How's he coming up with these things? Like they didn't make sense to me on paper. And so you told me, uh, sort of your college background and, and the numbers and, this and that, and and you said, look, if if you see something, I all I know is they've got four legs, two ears, and if they can walk out of that paddock, and I like them on paper, I'm betting on them. And uh, I was like, all right, fair enough. And and I think from that moment on, I was like, the the guy's honest, man. He, and and I gotta say though, Jonathan, uh, and I'm not kissing ass or anything else, but even my wife, uh, Angie's commented how how great you do on our shows you're 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 very comfortable and and you're a handicapping fool man and, and you're seeing you're seeing trips on horses uh pretty much the same way as i would handicap uh as a jockey going back and, and watching a replay of a horse not necessarily the one i was riding but maybe one that got stopped uh and it should have been getting its picture taken and i would be able to uh, tell my agent uh, that night when the races were, hey, go see such and such. I want to ride. I want to ride this horse back here, the uh, three horse in the sixth race or whatever. And 
and just looking at troubled trips and, and uh, horses I thought I could help or, or maybe move forward. Um, if that makes sense to you, but no, of course, uh, no, that, that's, that's what I see you. I mean, you do your homework, buddy. I, you, you watch a lot of film and, and, uh, keep track of these horses. Well, you so. know, I think, I think one of the things I actually had a conversation with a friend the other day about this, uh, we kind of saw different sides and I'm kind of, I'm starting to kind of come around to it a little bit more, but you know, I think that riders, you know, very often, um, they get, they get, they take, you know, I think it's kind of like the president, right? Like, you know, they get, when things go right, they get no credit. When things go wrong, they get blamed for everything. And I think that there's a certain degree of that that, that is true. I think that as handicappers and as horse players, you know, we work hard, we do our, 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 our uh, we do our homework and we understand the, the circumstances that are about to unfold in a race. And I think that sometimes when we see a rider do something in a race that doesn't, make sense to us with the work that we've done, we ultimately get frustrated and blame them. And then look, there is times where I think guys do really stupid stuff that I wonder if they've ever looked at the form before. But then there's also situations that I had to teach myself was I have the, I have the luxury of hindsight. I have the luxury of making these decisions from my couch uh, in a t-shirt and no shoes on. I have the luxury of looking up and seeing the fractions were 22 and change or 25 and change. And I, I feel like, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a lot harder of a job than I think some handicappers give it credit for. Um, and don't get me wrong. I'm not letting them all off the hook for some of the dumb stuff they do, but I'm saying, you know, but that's, but I do dumb stuff every day too. I like horses. I shouldn't have liked, Oh damn, I didn't see that. Why didn't I do that? Oh my God. I can't believe I thought this horse was going to cut back. I'm such an idiot. So, you know, how, how did you handle the criticism um, when you when you were riding? And, and, and even now, you do a pretty good job of, well, I, I think that sometimes when, when you always point out how they made the mistake rather than, than beating them up for it. Yeah, look, I mean, you hold, I, I've been a guy that, uh, early on, I, I held everything inside. I I would hold, and then when it was like a pressure cooker, man. When I'd blow, I would really blow. And I, I learned to start venting, you know. I just get it off my chest. Don't hold it inside. And you know, uh, social media nowadays. I, somebody's been uh, kind of been going viral. The uh, Belmont Stakes uh, with Point Given. Uh, they've been showing that and, and some guy crucified me for my ride on uh, point given in the Kentucky Derby. And I'm like, if you only knew this, <laughs> if you only knew the score, uh, man. And, and so I, I let that just blow up my shoulders. Now, don't worry about it too much. But, you know, the, the other thing is, yeah, once we're getting on the horse, it, it's we're we're driving the Ferrari. Uh, but. You don't know what instructions uh, have been given to the jockey, especially early on in my career. I mean, I wanted to follow him to a T when I was riding for, for Wayne or, or Laz and uh, Gary Jones and, and uh, these powerhouses, man. Uh, they didn't let me just go out and do my thing. I, I learned to adjust to it. Um, Gary Jones, he was the best, man. He'd give me all these these instructions. And, you know, if this horse goes, uh, take back. But get him away from their running because warm this horse up really good. And don't forget to go left-handed. And, and then the last thing he'd say to you, if none of that works, do what you want. 
And uh, so you have to call a lot of audibles out there. And I, I was able to call a lot more audibles uh, in the latter part of my uh, both careers, you know, before I ended it in 2005 and, and then come back in uh, 2013. And people, most of the people I were writing for, they didn't give instructions. You know, they might, they might tell me what they expected. Uh, and there were a lot of times, I'll give you an example. I was writing in excess and, uh, the heck was it, uh, in a Whitney and I, I'd flown all night long and uh, taken the red eye and it's back when the jocks room was tiny there. They got a noisy sleeping room. And anyway, I, I just, just waking up from, you know, a couple hours sleep and my valet came in, really woke me up and he said, Hey, uh, Bruce Jackson, the trainer of NXS, he's out front, he wants to talk to you. So I'm like one to five on the morning line. He can't get beat. And uh, I go outside and Bruce sits down. He says, listen, you may think you're riding a one to five shot today, but he said this horse, he, he got loose the other morning. A uh, milk truck came by, some, some cans fell out of the back of the truck and he got loose. I started laughing. He said, no, I'm serious. He said, you are not riding a one to five shot today. I don't know if he's going to show up or not. He said, got a little bruise on his foot. I was worried about it. He's sound on it uh, this morning. But he said, I'm just telling you, don't ride him like he's one to five. Ride him like he's 20 to one. Well, he ran off and hid. He went by about 12 lakes. And I, I come back and I told Bruce, I said, you are the worst trainer I've ever seen. I said, this is the best race this horse has ever run in his career. But little things like that, you know, you you don't know some of these conversations we get in the paddock sometimes. Look, uh, uh, I'm, I'm probably a work shy on this horse. I wish I had another work in him. Uh, be conservative. Save all you can for, for the finish. I don't want you to send him today. And those are the deals. Like Andy sometimes says, I can't believe this jockey had this horse. Why, why didn't he just go to the lead? Well, if you got a horse that's a work short, you don't want to be hooking anybody going head and head in 21 and change you'd, you'd sooner try and take them back off that fast pace and see if they can adapt to it and then you get chastised uh, for it but um those are some of the things mentally uh that jockeys have to deal with and and then uh deal with uh the abuse afterwards and sometimes that abuse is well founded i i made plenty of mistakes during my career and uh you know the old saying of if uh, if you're when I when I was young, um, the old saying with with agents, if you're not getting days, you're not trying. And it was about the truth. <laughs> Absolutely. So. What what uh you know I know that the in look and I don't want to get into that because it's just it's TV and it's all behind us now. But obviously there was a pretty heated situation this summer with you and Andy on air. I wasn't even on that day, so I didn't, I heard about it. People were texting me, but more or less I want to talk about what you guys were discussing. And that is is bias on a racetrack because I'm a strong believer in it. I mm -hmm. I've seen the science that supports it. I know that it's real, and I know that it has become pretty prevalent even more nowadays. But my question is is as a rider, how did you handle that? How how what did you how aware of you how aware of it were you? How impactful was it in your decisions throughout the race? Um, and, and just what is your overall opinion on the importance of bias as it pertains to, to how horses are going to run on the day? That's, it's a great question. Um, 
here's here. Uh, there's two different ways I look at it. Is, is it a false bias? Sometimes because if you look, uh, sometimes when when they say uh, it's a come from behind, horses are are winning on the lead. It's a merry-go-round out there, or just the opposite. Horses are coming from off the pace. Well, if you if you go back and do the handicapping. The horse that won was the best horse in the race. So what? This is a false bias. This horse, that's how his running style is. He was the best horse in the race. And you'll see that early on in the card. And, and my deal was, you know, when I'd take those red-eye flights in or when I was local, uh, I made it. I, I was, myself and Mike Smith, always the first ones in the jocks room. And there's a reason for that. We're watching the previous day's uh, replays as well as, when the races start, I might not be riding till the seventh, eighth race. And I might be just riding two horses. Uh, never mind about the turf because the turf, I think, form holds up better on turf than it does on, on dirt. Um, you don't get as many biases other than when the rail's out at 30 feet at Santa Anita on a Wednesday and there's only eight horses. If you got speed, uh, that it's a huge, huge bias for front runners at, at Santa Anita on the turf. But my point being, uh, I don't know if you're following what I what I'm saying when I say there's a false bias. The horses that won, according to the running style, they were supposed to win anyway. They they were the best horse. They're short priced horses. They were bet on. Uh, and like when I would go in um, to ride the Derby uh, or or ride whatever big race it was, and I'd be on six or seven other horses during the day. You know what? They were test runs. I was checking every bit of that racetrack, trying to find and I'd watch the races, uh, see if there was some some sort of bias. Like Belmont, uh, you know, it can get really, really good on a sloppy track right on the fence. And then it can be a, a super dry day and you want to be out in about the, the six or seven path. Uh, coming, it, it doesn't matter if you're losing ground. That is the fastest part of the racetrack. And those are the things I looked for. I didn't look at it as a gambler. I was looking at right. an edge, how I could win. Jerry Bailey was great at that. Chris McCarron, Mike Smith. I mean, could you're you watching. You don't share anything with anybody. But you're you're testing different parts of the racetrack on prior races before the big one. Now, do you, and can then you, you feel thing. it underneath Go ahead. you? Could you actually feel it? Yes. You could feel where yes, it's deeper it, and where it's not. Yeah, you can you can feel. Uh, I mean, it's almost like um, uh, uh, driving a car in in the snow, and you hit slush, and then you hit some dry pavement, and and boom, you just accelerate. And um, it's like we say they're spinning their wheels. They literally are spinning their wheels, and and the entire racetrack might be, you know, a deeper, loose kind of racetrack where there it's it's bad for everybody in every place. But if you can find that one path uh, that that's good. And Mike knew where all the good paths were when it was sloppy at, at Belmont. I knew where they were. You either wanted to be right on top of the fence or out where the tire, uh, the tractor tires were, out in about the four path, and then out in the eight path where the next tire was. Uh, right. I mean, that's why I don't knock. The track was harder down there. That's one of the reasons why I don't knock Mike, which which was a ride that was obviously controversial for him on McKinsey in, uh, in the Met Mile. It's because the rail was good. It was good all weekend. It was good that day. And he kept McKenzie on the rail the entire time. And yes, he got into trouble. But here's the problem I have when it comes to, to judging jockeys on pace and on bias is that, and then getting into trouble, is that if he would have been four wide, four wide, four wide, we would have flipped out on him 
there too. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, for instance, yeah. Victor Espinosa went four wide, four wide on that Philly CC who's going to be running in the Apple Blossom this weekend for Michael McCarthy. He, he was four wide, four wide on her in the race where Gorana and, uh, and Serengeti Empress were, and, and I was butchering him. But then if mm-hmm. I'm going to butcher him for not being aware of the bias, I can't butcher Mike for being aware of it, but then getting unfo- getting in trouble and, and having and having bad luck. Um, right. Because the reason he was running at Matoli as fast as he was is because he spent the entire part of the first part of the race on the rail, on the good rail, and he had a lot more energy to make that furious run. If he's four wide, four wide, he, he's going to finish three lengths back and, 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 McKin- and, and Matoli's going to be opening up. So, man, it, it's, a, yeah. it's a slippery slope. <laughs> well, one of the luxuries of, of getting into the Hall of Fame and having the, the type of career that uh, Mike has had and that I had is you just sometimes you just say, screw it, man. This is this is the move I've got to make to win this race. And a perfect example is is Zenyatta in the Breeders' Cup Classic where he cut the corner, man. He he made every right move there was. And had he not, you know, if he'd have got stopped. When, it, when he split horses, everybody would have butchered him. But if he didn't do what he did, he wasn't good enough to go around that day. And he rides some super brave races that uh, a lot of times when, when you're riding a, a high caliber race uh, where you're favored, you just think to yourself, do not give the trainer or the, the betting public a reason to blame me. Uh, in other words, don't get them stopped. And, and if you do that, you're getting wide trips and you're not riding with any confidence. So, you know, trust me, when, when, you're, when you're armed and dangerous and you know it during a race, you know you can get through those small gaps. And, and you know your horse as well, whether they will do that when that small gap opens for milliseconds. Man, you've got to be able, you've got to have a horse that will poke their head up in there and, and go. I was, I was a little bit of, uh, critical of, of Julian uh, last summer with the, the uh, three-year-old Phillies. Frank, um, Frank's Rockette. Frank's Rockette, you know, and I said he was indecisive. Well, you know what? Frank's Rockette, she she maybe did not accelerate or give him the feel that she could get through that hole uh, before it closed back up. And there, there's split-second decisions that, that you have to make and, and you have to feel underneath you. And, and trust me, it, that holds open for a millisecond, and and it's half a millisecond that you make the decision to point them towards that hole, and they either go or they don't. And and a lot of them, you know, you're better off, especially on the West Coast. The kickback on these tracks, you know, has has been brutal over the last five years. I don't know why, but but they have been. Uh, I complained about it when I was riding, and and uh, a lot of horses. I, we go to. I'd go to the East Coast, and they said, "Why do you guys all lose ground, man? Why are you going so wide?" And I said, "Well, you come out here, and you're gonna see. It hurts, and they won't run into it. And I personally don't like taking it. Uh, so, well, those well, are things that, you gotta that tell- are the intangibles for for uh, the fans and and uh, you know the betters Gee, you, that you have to you have to take into consideration." You, you just reminded me of a funny story. You have to tell the story about the worst kickback you ever took in your life. <laughs> oh, Janine Sahadi, man. And she didn't kick me. <laughs> she may as well have. I rode a horse for her at, uh, at Del Mar back in the day that was a heavy favorite. It was, 
it was like a, a starter race or something. And, um, she'd put me on cause he, he got a poor ride the time before. And, and she insisted that, that I ride the horse and, um, we turned into the backside and I see this shoe come uh, a horse shoe coming at me. And, uh, I sort of ducked to the side. And when I ducked to the side, that, that shoe came directly over the horse's head and just launched itself right in my crotch. And, uh, I mean, it, it knocked the air out of me. Um, I, I stood up. Um, I, I mean, I just went numb. You, you know what it's like to get kicked in the nuts. It's doesn't feel good. (laughs) (laughs) No, it doesn't. And, uh, uh, so, I've got the wind knocked out of me and, and that shoe had stayed in my lap. Cause you, you know, you're, you're crouched down, you got the knees bent up. And, and when I pulled up after the race, the outrider had to help me pull up. I was still out of breath. We're going a mile and mile or a mile and 16th. It was two turns and uh outrider pulled me up and I, I'd reached down and I grabbed that shoe. So I came back and Janine's standing there with a look on her face about like Jerry Hollendorfer had at me that day for, uh, getting stopped on his horse and and she says what was that hick that's what she always called me the hick what was that hick and i i threw her the shoe and i said this hit me you know where going down the backside and that's what happened and she said oh my god are you okay sorry and i was like and and uh the stewards called me and said what what's going on i told them and i had well not only proof down below but i had the shoe he mentioned the stewards. Did did uh, what was your relationship when you were riding with stewards? And and uh, and and I'm of the belief that the stewards' room is missing a very important uh, uh, participant in their decisions, and that's someone who's actually sat on a horse's back before. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, I mean, I wish that every stewards' room in the country had a a uh, former writer that was respected and, and knows the game, uh, respected by not only the press, but uh, has the credentials to be respected by the race fans as well. And what what I'd really like to see is uh, a lot like the NFL has of, uh, you know, a, a, a branch, whether it's in, in Lexington, Kentucky, or for reviews of major, major calls in, in, uh, the major races where a panel of, sorry, I got helicopters flying over me right now. I got to walk into the house. No, you're all right. Um, I would love to see, uh, that panel of, of three retired riders, uh, say it's Chris McCarron, Lafitte Pinkai, Eddie Delahousie, uh, that are making those judgment calls on, on, uh, how much damage was, was actually done and having them ridden races, knowing what appears like there was lots of room. Trust me, when you're going 40 miles an hour and somebody's got you up on top of the fence, it's, it's, it's way tighter than it looks on, on film, uh, or on camera. It camera softens a lot of incidents up. Um, in other words, maximum, maximum security DQ in the, in the Kentucky Derby. What's that song? Uh, you should have seen it in Living Color, country song. <laughs> uh, you know, if it, if, if it looks bad on TV, you should have seen it in Living Color because it was really bad. Um, so 
you know, I'd like to see that, whether that will ever happen. There's a lot of discussion right now whether, you know, uh, the federal government's going to get in and, and oversee us. And I, I don't know whether we need the federal government, but we definitely need to get all our ducks in line as far as having the same medication rules across the board at every one of the, the 30 plus racing jurisdictions in the country. It's a lot like we, we're seeing right now with this coronavirus. Every state has different rules. I, I was, it's not a laughing matter, but I told Angie, I said, this is a lot like horse racing. Every state has different rules. <laughs> and uh, and everybody's, it, it's, it turns political. And a lot of times that happens in racing too in the different jurisdictions. Absolutely. And, you know, you mentioned, you mentioned getting tightened up on the fence. Obviously you've, you've, uh, you've gone down quite a bit. And, and, and I remember you telling me that, and, and I think maybe Angel Cordero told me this as well, that it's not even really that going down the ground usually isn't your biggest enemy. And it's not even usually getting stepped on because they said, that, I think maybe Angel told me that the horses will, will do their best to not step on you. Yes. But it's, it's yes. when they're trying to jump over you it's them kicking you in the head that is the most dangerous thing. Yes, hundred percent agreed. Uh, I mean, uh, I made a I made a comment last week. Uh, Ryder went down in uh, at, at Calder on the turf course, and right, wrong, indifferent. I I made the, the uh, statement to Lafitte. I said, well, one thing about it, if I had my rathers of where I was going to fall, I'd rather fall on the turf than the dirt. Uh, and the dirt more than a synthetic. Uh, and the reason for that, when you when you hit the grass, you more than likely, if you hit right, you slide. Um, you don't just uh, come to an abrupt halt. That's what causes a lot of brain tra- trauma and and uh, uh, back and neck injuries is coming to the abrupt stop from forty miles an hour and hitting hitting the deck and. Um, you know, and, and when I said rather fall on dirt than synthetics, we, we found that when you fell on, on the synthetics, you, you hit like a lawn dart. You, there is no, no sort of rolling and tucking and rolling. And, and <clears throat> people have asked me since I started riding, go, how do you guys learn how to tuck and roll? It's, it's human instinct, man. You go into the fetal position like you, you're, uh, with your mama uh just out of the womb and and uh you get in that fetal position and when you've when you've hit and you've stopped you you start crawling for the inside rail like there's bullets coming over your head um it's it's not something that's taught it's just something that happens how many how many surgeries g have you had oh god (laughs) i've had uh 13 well 14 with the with the knee replacement on my right knee i had five arthroscopics on my left i've got a plate in my right wrist uh both shoulders reconstructed uh ankles i I don't know um and then my my head um i did mike smith uh i think it was 2000 2005 2004 something like that uh, we were at Del Mar and, and he said, gee, he said, I, I went to Newport, Newport beach to these doctors, this Dr. Amen that does all the NFL studies, uh, for head trauma. And they'd never, uh, inspected a jockey's brain before they shoot dye and you get all these, uh, tests done. And, 
and everything. And he said, I, I recommend you, I recommend you do it. He said, you might not like what they have to tell you, but uh, he said, you should do it. So I went a couple weeks later and, and uh, long, long story short, uh, they said it looked like I'd been in 32 major car accidents and that uh, chances were I was um, with the amount of damage that's been done. Uh, I'm going to have some dementia, uh, and, and nasty stuff, uh, go on, but Hey, it's what I love to do, man. Um, I wish I was still doing it, but father time finally rang the bell and, and, uh, it's over with and I'm good with it now. But, uh, I, I, uh, I feel bad for, for Angie and Maddie, what they, what they may have to go, go through, uh, in the future, but I, I'm good now. And, and, uh, I watched a not to change the subject, but I, I watched a great show on Netflix last night. Uh, it's called being AP and it's about, uh, AP McCoy, uh, what's considered, uh, possibly the greatest jumps writer, uh, in the history of the sport. Um, I watched it last night. It's it's filmed unbelievable, and it it made me. I'm like son of a gun. There we go. Uh, <laughs> uh, this guy loves loves the game as much as as I loved it, and I still love it. I'm I'm just talking as a jockey, but uh, he was sort of forced into retirement. But he he had a lot more trauma in. Uh, and surgeries than than I've ever had. And if you watch what he rode through, you want to talk about playing hurt. Uh, if you watch that thing, you're gonna go, "Oh my God, this guy's nuts!" But you, he he got the job done. Did you ever jump? No, no. You know who did? Uh, Jose Santos rode a rode a jumps race at uh, uh, Saratoga, and uh, John Luke Samin. Uh, and John Cougay, uh, they would ride the odd jump race at, at Saratoga. And, uh, Jose, he, he won his race. He was riding a short. Jose used to ride so short. And when I say short, the stirrups jerked up. That's how we rode. That's why my knees are so bad. <laughs> Looking at old pictures of how I, I made the Ortiz brothers look like they were riding long. Um, but uh, no, I the only jumping I've ever did is uh, my oldest daughter Ashley. She had a old retired racehorse. Uh, she was eleven, twelve years old, and and she was uh, jumping with uh, Christina Oliveras and and um, uh, Shoemaker's daughter Amanda. And uh, I went out one day and and I got on her jump horse, and I'd never jumped a fence before, and. Uh, man, I'm having a blast. I'm hauling ass and jumping these fences and I'm not counting strides or anything. And, and her trainer started screaming, get off that horse. You're going to screw him up. I said, well, I didn't knock anything over. And she said, no, but you, you're not doing it right. And, uh, that's the only time I went over jumps, but, uh, yeah. I remember, I, I'm going to butcher the story, but Richie told the story, Migliori about how he tried to do it one time. And, uh, in a riot, uh, the, the trainer, I guess, told him, uh, to, to, right before you had to tell the horse to jump, you had to sell, you had to yell jump, and he didn't do it. And I guess the horse just like ran through the fence or something. And, and he turns out the horse was like blind, so you you had to tell him to jump. <laughs> and if you told him to jump, he would jump. So I, I probably butchered it, but you know I'm sure Richie could tell it better. Um, 
you, you mentioned something that I, I didn't even have this jotted down as like a topic, but it's something that I'm kind of interested in. Uh, you know, writing in, in the 80s and the 90s, we're obviously in a completely different world now. And unfortunately, we have some of the same issues. But, you know, you shared a jocks room with uh, a lot of, uh, you know, Latin American, Hispanic writers where there's a language barrier. Mm. Um, and obviously, um, you know, racism is around now. It was around then. Was that an issue in the room? Was, was it segregated? Did, did the white guys kind of hang out on one side, the, the Hispanic guys in another? Or, did, or was the room kind of one of those places where there wasn't a real color divide or, or, or was there? And it, it just it, it just kind of evolved over time. There, there was no, no divide until we got on the racetrack. <laughs> and uh, I, I, don't, I speak a little bit of Spanish. Uh, I should speak uh, fluent Spanish. Being here for a number of years, I've, I've been, and I'm embarrassed I don't, but I, I damn sure understand it. And uh, there'd be talking out on the racetrack, and I experienced it when I went to ride for Andre Fob in 2004 in France. Uh, the whistles uh, from other riders signaling that I was coming or, or speaking in French. And fortunately, with the the bit of Spanish that I under, understand and that I speak, uh, they're, they're two very similar languages that, you know, with, with a little bit of uh, Spanish that, that I understand, uh, I could translate a lot of the French uh, as well. So... I had I had some words at times uh, in the weighing room. When I come back, I I'm like you know if you guys got to talk to each other to get me beat, because uh, I, I was riding the most powerful horses in the world uh, for probably the most powerful trainer uh, in the world in in Europe anyway, and uh, you know I some of those races you know they were four and five horse fields, and it was me against them, you know so. Uh, I had to, I had to learn to, uh, who I wanted to follow, who I knew I could, uh, follow in a race to get me to the glory land that, uh, wasn't going to make mistakes. And, and, uh, I made, I made a lot of great friends, uh, worldwide jockeys that were just, uh, great, hardworking, uh, great riders that, that were honest and, and they, the thing I, I find mostly uh, in today's generation versus back then, man, I wanted to ride against the best because it made me better. The the rivalry that Jose Santos and I had on the East Coast versus West Coast, we wound up being best friends in a short period of time because he was a kid on the East Coast, I was a kid on the on the West Coast, and whenever we would, uh, you know, happen to he, either he would fly to Los Angeles or I'd fly to New York and we'd ride together. We, we formed a friendship probably like, uh, Georgie Velasquez and, and Angel Cordero back in the days. But I'm proud to, proud to call him a friend. It, you know, like Mike Smith and I, uh, the race with Songbird, it's, he would, Mike would, would come to me in the jocks room uh, if I wouldn't ride in the race. Say, hey, gee, do you see this race the same way as I do? He talked to me about it with Arrogate and, and stuff. And uh, yeah, I do. Uh, or no, I don't. And and me, vice versa. You know, he'd have his marks on the form. I'd have my marks on the form. And he said, what do you see me doing here? And, you know, we'd discuss it. The, the, uh, but the, the greatest was 
uh, Songbird and, and Beholder because we didn't discuss it prior to it was like that race did not exist on the Breeders' Cup uh, uh, program. We talked about every other race except for that one, and uh, he knew what I was going to do. I knew what he was going to do, and 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 the draw set it up, and uh, it's almost like we could, you know, it was a chess match. Uh, whenever we would ride together, but we each knew each other's every move that they were going to make. What, what country, I mean, outside of the United States, obviously, but what country did you enjoy riding in the most? Um, I would say France. I, I, I mean, I, I love Ireland. I love England. Um, the, the driving in England uh, and the traffic, and it, it's, it's a hard life for a jockey, even at, at the top level, let alone uh the the guys that aren't making much money trying to make a name for themselves but you know you're taking little puddle jumpers uh flying from this track to that track and when Frankie Dettori was in his plane crash uh his plane uh for Godolphin uh that he had was in getting serviced and and the plane that crashed was the one that that I'd been flying on uh, the whole summer before that was in 1999 when I was there riding for Michael Stout, but, uh, jumping on planes, riding two different race meetings, or you had a driver that was taking you from, uh, one track to the other. So you could ride, you know, you could ride the two o'clock at, at, uh, Haydock and be back to wherever or catch a plane. And then your driver would meet you at that last meeting that as soon as they would drop you off at one of those tracks, they would head to the, the other track where you were going to finish up. And there might be a group of three or four jockeys that were taking a helicopter or a plane to that race meeting. And then you drive home and uh, get up. And sometimes, like like driving uh, to to York from Newmarket, man, it, it, either taking the train or you're driving, but it's six and a half hours, no matter how you look at it, to uh, maybe go and do no good, you know, uh, if that makes sense. But France is very, very civilized, very more like... Uh, uh, here in America, uh, where, you know, there, there'd be, uh, you'd race at different race meets every single day, except for when Deauville would, would start for, uh, the August meeting. Um, and the tracks are flat there. Um, and, you know, living in yeah, just outside of Chantilly to ride in Paris, it's like, you know, uh, depending on traffic, 35, 40 minutes to get into to Paris and right either um, St. Cloud or uh, uh, Longchamp. Uh, beautiful country. I, I enjoyed living there. You know, G, I've always wondered, you know, uh, the difference between the international riders and, and us. And we've talked about this before, and, and you can elaborate on it, but I, it, I have another question. But, you know, I think some of the European riders, I feel that, that kidney punch thing they do with their butts i find it to be so ugly and unattractive but apparently it's it's sometimes effective but my question i guess is you know let's take a guy and, and one of the best riders i think at oaklawn on the dirt and it's an all dirt circuit is, is uh ricardo santana i think ricardo's remarkable he's aggressive he's physical he's he's uh he's allowed to take chances because he's got the the, the support of steve and and uh and so a, a guy like ricardo who's riding all dirt, all, you know, all for the entire meet of Oaklawn. If you were to pick him up and put him at Ascot, and then you were to pick up Ryan Moore and put him at Oaklawn, 
Okay, so a turf rider riding all dirt, a dirt rider riding all turf. Who who would have more success? Where would the issues be? Who would struggle? Would it be the same? Would they both just win the same kind of click they are? What would be the easier transition? Um, <laughs> excuse me. <clears throat> uh, they're, they're both the utility man that you want on your team. Both of them would have success in both places. They're, they're pure naturals. They're instinctive riders. Um, and, and Ryan Moore's had his fair share of success on, on dirt tracks, all weather, uh, grass, whatever. He knows a good horse. He, he knows what he feels underneath him the same as Ricardo does. So, uh, you know, with, with, uh, Ryan having uh, international experience, experience that he has, I, I would give the edge to him and, and, uh, you know, he's, he's older, he's had more experience than Ricardo. But it wouldn't take Ricardo uh, very long to figure out. I, I mentioned something earlier about who to follow in a race. It's very important in turf race. And if you're riding a tactical race, to know who you're following, uh, that they can get you to the glory land. Uh, I, I found out right away when, when I went to England, the guy, two guys I wanted to follow were Richard Hughes and Frankie DeTore, three guys, and Kieran Fallon. Uh, if, if you could park right behind any one of those three in any type of race on a track I'd never seen before, if I could just follow them, they're going to find the, the, the holes to get through. And I, I, I would win races. I get when I, I was riding machines, man, for, for, uh, Sir Michael and, and I kept nailing them on the wire and I, I'd come back and I said, thank you. And what, what's that mean? Why are you saying thank you? I said, you rode a great race, man, and you're teaching me how to ride these different race courses. Windsor, a figure eight uh, race course going a mile and an eighth, and all of them different with uh, different undulations at different points. And, and I, I think that's probably the best I ever rode was when I was there in 1999 because we didn't, we didn't really have a racing form like our, our data that we have here in America, as far as horses running styles, uh, you had to watch a lot of film and, and, uh, the main thing was knowing who to follow and until you really knew a race course well. Uh, and that was, it was challenging. Uh, but, uh, I was, I was a lot more reactive to a situation in split second decisions making and, and also being a, uh, student of, of the other jockeys of, of watching their mistakes or or guys that's not making many mistakes. You know, I, I call it like here in America, the Kentucky Derby, there's normally five contenders in the Kentucky Derby of a 20 horse field. And the rest of them are street sweepers that you don't want to be caught behind because they're, they're going to get themselves in trouble around the S curves or, or run themselves into some spots they don't belong in. Did you win for the queen G when you were riding? Yeah. Yes, I did. Uh, Michael was the uh, main trainer for the Queen. Uh, I won her first race. Uh, it was her first race at the Royal Meeting, her meeting at Royal Ascot uh, on a horse named Blueprint um, back in, in 1999. And I eventually the horse. That's before it was a, a graded race. It was a, a listed race back then. And Blueprint, uh, basically the horses that Michael had, if they weren't group horses, uh, they didn't need them in the yard. He was over, he had more than enough horses and horses to occupy. So I wound up uh, uh, 
selling that horse for them to Vladimir Seren. And, and uh, I not only won on him at Royal Ascot, but I won a couple of stakes on him at Santa Anita too. So, uh, yeah, it was pretty cool. Oh, that's awesome. So you're, you're, you're what, you're going into year two of retirement? Yeah. Do do you even do you even own a scale anymore? Or did you throw those out when you when you? <laughs> I got on it. I got on it uh, yesterday morning. I I know my suits aren't fitting just right right now. Um, things are uh, starting to get a little tight on me. I went to another. I'm I'm now wearing a, a size 29 waist size from uh, 28 and. Got on the scales yesterday morning with my bathrobe and and uh, slippers on. I was a cool buck thirty eight point two. I just I looked at myself in the mirror and just grinned. <laughs> <laughs> well, did did you have a, did you have an ugly relationship with weight or was it was it uh, was it uh, was it main you know could you maintain it pretty well? No, I, I I look at I've been watching these old videos that are being posted and stuff on Twitter. And man, I, I looked like I'm 12 years old and I was in my late twenties, early thirties. And, and I was light, man. I, I could tack like uh, 114, 115. You had to be able to then, uh, scale of weights has gone up, but I'll tell you when I, when I found it, uh, difficult was, uh, when I went to, when I went to Europe to ride, the scale of weights is, is much higher. And really, the lightest I would have to do, uh, like in England, they they do it by uh, stone, uh, eight stone ten, whatever it's going to be. But uh, the lightest I'd have to do in a day was like 121, 122. Um, and then when when I came home, when I took the contract with Thoroughbred Corporation and came back, I started having problems with my weight because I my body had gotten used to that and then uh again when I went to France in 2004 uh with all the the uh rich food and and wine and champagne and everything else then it became a struggle for me um I said well the scale of weights is higher over here so I can eat a little more. But what I found myself I, I still had to hit the sauna even though I'd gained five pounds. I was pulling as much weight to do 123 as I had been to be doing 116. And um, then after the <clears throat> retirement in, in 2005 and coming back in uh, late 2012, getting ready for 2013, I, every day was, was a chore. I, I, would, uh, I couldn't run because of my knees, uh, but I would, I would walk with the, with the sweats on, walk three or four miles prior to the races with the sun beating down and pull three or four pounds and then go in and pull another pound and a half. So sometimes it was uh, four to six pounds I was pulling every day and, and your body gets used to it. I, I, I didn't think I would ever miss the sauna, but man, I felt good when I was sitting in that, <laughs> I'd get out of that thing. Um, but yeah, it became, the older I got, the, the more of a struggle it became. So I, you know, there's 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 always things uh, that are controversial with when it comes to like the riders and and if you were just in charge and you got to you got to to wave your magic wand at the riders in the United States, would would you trade uh, allowing them to ride at 125 so that you would think that that would be a much easier situation for all of them, a healthier situation for all the riders, but in order to do that, they had to lose the riding crop, or 
What do you think that? Nah, let's just keep it at you know attacking one fourteen, and we we gotta have the stick. What, what what what? Which one do you find if you had a magic wand to pick one? Which one would you pick? Oh God, um, you know it, it's it's prehistoric uh, the scale of weights, and and with this coronavirus going on, they've raised the scale of weights at uh, the five tracks that that are running right now, and um, I know you. You wanted Gary Stevens riding at 123 versus 117. Uh, more strength. My brain was working right. Um, as far as uh, the riding crop, uh, man, you couldn't you couldn't pay me enough money to go out there and try and and ride a race without something without without that riding crop in my hand. Not not necessarily for use to make them move forward, but uh, in, in case of a, a safety situation. Um, and I, I think that you should be able to encourage them by waving, uh, the riding crop at them. Uh, neither one is, you know, the weight, the weight thing, God is not making kids as small as he used to with, with all of the nutrition that we have now versus, uh, the nutrition when I was born in, in the sixties, uh, early sixties, uh, kids were not as healthy as, as they are now. And they didn't, uh, grow as big as, and strong as they do now. I mean, my God, I, the, the older kid's mother, she was a jockey. She's from the Bays family and she was small. I'm small. And, and our two boys are, they're big boys. Uh, my son does gallop horses, but, and he works horses for Robertina Diodoro, but, um, you know, it, there's no chance he would have been a jockey. And then Riley, my, my other son, the skateboarder, shit, he's, he's close to six foot. He's tall and lanky, but, um, if you know what I mean, that's, that's the deal with it. I, it's, it's a good question. I would, I, I definitely think the scale of weights needs to be raised to, uh, um, and especially for the apprentices, uh, Jonathan, for the fact that some of these guys, I mean, they're, they're 17, 18 years old. And now it seems like guys are starting to ride a little bit later after they've graduated and so on and so forth in the early twenties. And, uh, their horses are getting in with, uh, you know, 112, 113 pounds and, and they're facing more difficulty than, than, the the veteran riders are because they're the scale of weights has has not been raised and we've been a i was president of the jocks guild uh for nine years uh leading up to 2005 and the guild has tried to get the scale of weights uh raised uh since the the mid 80s who's fighting to no, to no avail the racetracks the racing secretaries because is it just that old and look, uh, 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 this is this is not going to be this is not our Fox show. We were allowed to speak a little bit uh, more frankly here, so I'm not going to edit what I wanted to say. Is this just like that bullshit deal where people say, "Well, that's just how we've always done it, so that's how we're going to do it"? Is that their excuse and reason why? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly why. And and you go back to Bobby Frankel, and Bobby was a stickler for weight. Man, he'd take you off a horse if you were going to be two pounds overweight and handicapped. And that's bullshit. And I tell Bobby right to his face, that's bullshit, Bobby. You in, 
and I had these discussions with Patrick Cohn as well. And Patrick, you know, he, when I was writing everything for him in Saratoga in 2005, he, he did not want me doing any less than 118 pounds. He said, I will take you at 118 pounds over you at 115 pounds. He got it. Um, you know, I, you, it's just, and, and the thing that really pisses me off is you've got exercise riders like my son, he's, he's probably pushing a buck 50 or whatever. And then you put the exercise saddle on those exercise saddles with the, with the padding and, and all the equipment, you're talking another probably 35 pounds. So these horses are going out working and Bob Baffert, I, I give him a lot of credit. He uses these these super jockey uh, size exercise riders, riders to do all of his morning workouts. Uh, and I understand the the reason for that is you know horses still developing and you're trying to keep them really sound for a race. But like they're going out there and and working three quarters of a mile and one ten and change, one twenty five. Uh, and some of these outfits, you know, they've got some pretty generous sized uh, exercise riders. And we watch the XBTV uh, workouts on our show. And you look at the size of a few of these. And, and, and this is nothing. <clears throat> look, you can have a, a person that weighs 110 pounds that has zero talent. And they're causing more damage than, than the guy that weighs 150. But we call it riding light. That guy is not moving on the horse. They look like they're they're part of the horse, and uh, so um, I hope that makes sense to you. Yeah. So so like for instance, like this weekend with the with the apple blossom, Serengeti Empress is going to carry one twenty two, and uh, I don't know. Uh, there's other horses that are in the fifteen, one fifteen, one sixteen. Are Nobody you? Are can you... do the weight. Nobody can. Let's let's see how many overweights there's going to be. Okay, so like, <laughs> like for instance, uh, let's just for instance, um, I'm sure Joel can do 120. All Emma can all Emma and and Corey Lannery do 115. Yeah, he's light rider. He can. Yeah. Um, Florence 120. He'll be fine. Drayden 119. Not a problem. Um, David Cohen 115. No. Martin no Garcia. Martin Garcia 114. No chance. <laughs> Not unless he's gone on a big diet since I saw him last. And God bless him. He's having a great meet. And he's got my old agent, Jay Fedor, working his ass off for him. And they've had a good uh, winter and spring. But I, I think handicaps are obsolete. And, and I don't think that we have enough of them now for you betters uh, to be able to handicap uh, specifically. You're you, – you're doing your handicap, and if you're putting weight into it, I, I really don't think there there are certain horses that could carry weight, and I knew they were going to be able to carry weight. Uh, a filly like uh, Silver Bullet Day, not a problem. Put the barn on her. I don't care if it's 127, 128. She's going to run just as fast because uh, she can get that weight moving. Big, powerful thing. There were other ones that I knew when they – moved up in class and were carrying more weight, they weren't going to be able to get that weight moving. Uh, uh, Silver Charm, a point given. You you could put 140 on them. It wouldn't have mattered. Uh, they were going to get that weight moving and, and keep it moving. One, once they get that weight moving away from the gate, you look at the fall high weight every year, 
at Aqueduct. And, and those horses, you know, they're carrying 138, 140 pounds. And they're running the same times as the horses that are carrying uh, 118. So. Yeah, I mean, I just, it's, you know, like it's the modern game that I fell in love with and learned the, the weights don't matter that much. So I never really had to, you know, study it and really try to figure it all out. I mean, I don't know. I don't think it's fair probably to say it's like us putting a couple extra quarters in our pocket. But right. how do you feel about it? I mean, is it? I mean, is it, no, is that, it that? No. No. I, I mean, like I said, you – Trainers would have been better off having Gary Stevens at 123 than 116 or 117 pounds. Uh, just because I was I was stronger. Lafitte Pinkai, give me Lafitte Pinkai at 126 pounds every single day of the week and, and spot him 10 pounds. That's the difference he made in horses. Uh, I, I don't care if you if you put, you know, an apprentice on uh, on secretariat. Uh, and, and you were able to claim the weight would, would have you trusted him or wanted him over uh, Angel Cordero, uh, at 120? I don't think so. Does that you, make sense? Yeah, no, a hundred percent. No, I there, we're, there, totally we're, 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 uh, we're not race car dri uh, drivers, but same difference. A guy can either drive or he can't. So yeah. you no, can, it's like the old Delco commercial. You can pay me now or pay me later. I don't care. <laughs> Angel Cordero told me one time that if there's 10 races in a day, uh, seven of the winners, it doesn't matter who in the room was on them, they were going to win. The other three, the rider made the difference. Do you, do you agree with that or do you think it's... Yeah, 110%. 110%. When people ask me how much is it the horse and how much is it the, the jockey, um, Angel's right. Run ten races a day, and and uh, seven of the horses that win, maybe not that many, uh, especially in in full fields. But uh, you, when I'm asked that question, when it matters is when uh, three riders are are riding three equally talented horses, then the rider's going to make the difference. We, we mentioned Angel, and, and Angel is, uh, you know, he, he's obviously uh, one of the first jockey celebrities, and, and, and obviously, uh, you know, he's the, what they call him, the king of Saratoga and all these things. Gee, at what point of your career, and look, I'm going to ask you to kind of be a little bit braggadocious here, but at, at what point of your career did you feel like was like the height of your celebrity? Like, you know... You know, you got your red sports car, you're going, you're in Hollywood, you're going to party. Like, what, what was the height of, like, the G. Stevens celebrity when you were riding? Oh, uh, I, I don't know. I, you know, I, I didn't go out a lot, to be honest with you. I'd go to the Laker games when, when they were playing at the Forum and, and go watch the Kings play once they moved to Los Angeles because they were right next door to Hollywood Park. And, uh. I, I was riding horses for Dr. Bus, and then I became friends with Jimmy Bus and stuff. So I, those those were my only going out, you know, were to some sporting events. But I, I didn't go out a lot. And and the nice thing about Los Angeles is you can be anonymous uh, in in our business, especially nowadays because they've got all these other uh, pro sports teams and 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 Hollywood and everything else. But um, it was crazy when I lived in Hong Kong. Um, 
racing is so big there. The same in England. I'm I'm way more recognizable in, in Europe uh, when I get off an airplane or walk through uh, London Heathrow Airport or whatever. Uh, people people recognize me. Uh, it depends on where I'm at um, in the United States at this point in my life. I, I when I fly in the JFK, um, there's not a time. Uh, walking in or walking out of there that somebody's not going to say hey and strike up a conversation or on an airplane and the same in Kentucky but not so much here in California but when I was riding in Hong Kong and they literally would close the the shopping mall down for me and Ron Anderson was there with me and we'd do our shopping at night because I couldn't get through the mall um it was it was crazy um and then you know, you had paparazzi following you around um, in in England, especially when I was there in '99. I was the the American that's come over invading invading uh, the UK, uh, trying to do what Steve Coffin had done. And um, but right now, I'm in I'm in a really happy place right now, uh, doing the doing the shows we're doing for for Fox and um, you know just. It, this this time right now with all of us in in uh, shutdown mode and they've just ex- extended our time to May fifteenth here in in California. It's really given me a lot of time to reflect and and uh, spend time with Angie and Maddie right now. Um, she's doing her her uh, uh, she's got a chromie that she goes to class on at the kitchen table every morning. She's on spring break and and. Uh, Angie and her are back and forth at each other, and and uh, my good friend Mike Pulich up in Seattle, he said, "So what? What class are you teaching?" I said, "I'm not. I'm the principal." <laughs> <laughs> I I gotta imagine that like this is probably unique a unique time for you. I mean, it's 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 pretty crazy for me. I mean, you know, you, you mentioned the your, your your four kids from your previous marriage, and you were you were traveling and working and riding, and I mean, is, does this feel like? This four or five week stretch, is this like the longest you've ever like just just been home and not been doing anything? Yeah, most definitely. I was on the phone with a friend just before um, we touched base here this morning. A guy named uh, Paul Atkinson. That uh, He was the wor- working man's jockey. We, he's from Idaho as well. And, and uh, we rode together for a lot of years. And he's currently a steward here in Southern California. But uh, we were sort of talking about that and I said, man, I, I've, I've been staying up till like, uh, one o'clock in the morning watching. I'm done with Ozark now. So, I mean, three seasons of that and I've moved on to, to other TV shows and then I don't even roll over till seven 30. I'm a guy that, uh, up at five o'clock all my life. And you know what? It's it's not a bad time. Uh, my dogs, they can't figure out what the hell everybody's doing at home. Uh, they're looking at me like leaves so I can do something I'm not supposed to do. Um, but it, it's it's been, uh, like I said, a reflective time. And we, we sat last night. We played Monopoly two nights ago. We uh, played three different board games last night. Um, you know, it's sort of like going back to when I was a kid with my family in, in Idaho. It's everything has just kind of come to a stop and it's, it's scary, but it's, it's not a bad thing. We just got to get through this and, and, um, keep moving forward. 
one 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 foot in front of the other and just keep moving forward man they can do whatever they got to do they just better not mess with my saratoga that's all i'm saying i i, I hear that brother that's all i'm just <laughs> I just, and look, and I don't mean that, and I, I don't, I mean, obviously there's things that are so much more important in the world, and if we lose Saratoga so that people can can be healthy and take care of their loved ones, and so be it. I, but my my brain is cool with what's happening now. I'm, I'm binge-watching TV, I'm, I've, I've, I've been binge-watching Mad Men, uh, I'm, I'm thinking about taking another run at, at Sopranos all the way through. I started wow. watching uh, my nighttime show right before I go to bed is uh, the 30-minute episodes of the show Entourage on HBO. Um, I actually had an idea getting ready for this, this, this call we had that um, I haven't watched the, 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 the season, the, well, the first season, the only season, of Luck. I haven't watched oh, it wow. again. I watched it the first time, but that was 10 years ago. I, I think that, that it would be a lot of fun to watch it again now, just having more information about the game than I did at the point, and then obviously knowing you and seeing you in it, that would just be... That would be kind of fun and entertaining, so I'll probably take another run at that as well. But my point is, is that I just hope that my brain is hoping that I can have Saratoga as the light at the end of this tunnel. That's that's how my brain is working. Yeah, you know, John, uh, Jonathan, we I think we're we're thinking the same thing. Um, there was an announcement uh, yesterday that uh, the San San Diego uh, Fair. Uh, State Fair is is not going to open um, this year, so that I'm like, man, that that's why always the late move in to Del Mar's because that that fair is going on at the Del Mar Fairgrounds. So I'm like, man, is Saratoga going to run? Well, uh, Santa Anita is having a they're they're meeting with the. Uh, health commissioner, L.A. County health commissioner on Saturday, uh, Craig Frable, uh, CEO of, of uh, Stronic Group here in California, is, is meeting with them. And I was like, man, I hope I hope they can open back up. They've, they've made some even uh, tighter protocols on, on uh, separation. These horses are continuing to train. Uh, and they they need competition. This isn't something where we can just stop on these horses. And you do that, man. They're they're athletes. They're high strung, and they're going to start hurting themselves uh, in their stall. And um, you know, doing a great job right now. And all the help is is healthy and doing their jobs. But fingers crossed, we we can get back to some kind of normalcy, whether it's you know during this month or or halfway through next month. But I look forward to seeing you in Saratoga, brother. Oh yeah, it's gonna be fun, man. We're gonna we're gonna hang out. We gotta get back on the boat. Um, and you know, and look, I want it to be safe, right? Because like, uh, you know, if if the if 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 we're allowed, I mean, I think I, this is just look. And, and this conversation is gonna turn into what I I call on the podcast. Uh, we call it the I don't really know for sure. I'm speculating. This is not facts. I'm not a reporter. This is the I heard Chad Brown's horse in the first can't lose thing like mm. it's just backstretch talk but i'm pretty confident that we'll at least get to go you and i and andy and maggie and that they'll still be racing at saratoga um but then i started to think it's like well what am i going to do with austin like i usually bring austin along and he hangs out with pete and he i mean i can't if it's if, if the city's shut down it's just us i can't really bring him with me and so 
you know, it, it just, I'm just hopeful that everything starts trending in the right direction and it sounds like things are and, you know, hopefully it just keeps, it keeps going and, and we can, uh, we can enjoy a, a beautiful Saratoga. And, and, and another thing, and we can, we can start to wrap here is that, <clears throat> you know, on that same, that same notion of, you know, this is not, I don't know anything. This is just Chad Brown can't lose in the first back stretch talk. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm hearing that maybe, maybe Belmont stakes uh, late June. Uh, I'm hearing a, maybe Haskell, same place it always is. I'm hearing mm-hmm. maybe, um, maybe uh, Travers in early August. I'm hearing maybe uh, the Derby and then uh, the Preakness as the, the, the kind of a, the last three-year-old prep leading in to, to the Breeders' Cup. Like, these are all things I'm hearing. Like I said, backstretch talk. Right. But that would be cool. I, I mean, I can get with that schedule. It's a little bit weird running a mile and a half. I, I would think they would have to change the distance of the Belmont. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you there. And, and like you said, this is just our our backstretch talk and, and us uh, thinking aloud right now. But, man, how how sweet would it be to have, uh, run the Preakness, the Belmont, and then if there's a uh, triple crown on the line for the September uh, Kentucky Derby, how sweet would that be? That'd be cool, man. I mean, look, it's uh, it's that old saying, uh, you know, when life gives you lemons, you make lemonade. In fact, uh, talking about Mad Men as an advertisement agency, I, I had this great idea for Corona before all of this happened. And obviously it'll never happen now. But the idea for the ad was, and, and I got shot down by my friend who was uh, in advertising. He said it wouldn't work. But <laughs> the idea was, when life gives you lemons, ask for a lime. And then you like cut to a Corona with a lime in it. And he's like, no, nah, because that's like suggesting that when you're having a tough time to drink it away. And I was like, well, I think it's brilliant. You Corona, mean you don't? Yeah, Corona would probably pay for that now, I'd imagine. Poor, <laughs> how, I mean, I feel bad for those people. Their poor brand just got ruined <laughs> because well, of Well, here's the bottom line. A lot of, a lot of people's uh, careers have been ruined. This is affecting everybody in, in big ways, you know. Uh, I, 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 I saw, saw a quote this morning from uh, Helen, uh, Ellen DeGeneres. Uh, it, uh, Do you know the difference between the, the wealthy and the not so wealthy is they get the quarantine in a nicer place. <laughs> it's affecting everybody, man. And uh Oh, God willing, we'll, we'll get out of this thing. We're going to get out of this thing. Absolutely. Uh, worldwide. Well, well gee, uh, it, we've, we've, I think we've been for about an hour and 45 minutes. And, and uh, I want to I thank you, obviously, for being my, my first guest for an idea that, that I hope continues and, 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 and having people on to, you know, and look, we, we, we touched on some of your favorite horses, but my goal was to talk about things that people hopefully hadn't heard you talk about in other interviews. And, and I'll continue to try to, to, to tweak that, but it was, it was, a, it was an honor and a pleasure to, to have you on for my first guest, but it's also an honor and a pleasure to call you a friend. And, uh, I feel very fortunate to, to be able to say that. JK, thank you, man. I didn't know what we were going to talk about for two hours, but just like we're sitting in that trailer some days, we find stuff to talk about. Uh, it was enjoyable and, and, uh, stay safe, bro. All right, G we'll talk to you. I'll see you on Saturday. Okay, man.
Thanks. Well, that was fun. Um, I hope everybody enjoyed the conversation and, and, uh, Hopefully no one's mad at me for not following up on certain things that maybe I should have. I, I don't know. Look, I'm new to this. Pete's the host. I'm just the guy that stands there and tries to say things that are clever and funny and screw up math. Um, but, uh, yeah, so look, I, this, this is the idea. That was the, that was the trial run at it. Uh, I can assure you that I'll improve in certain ways and, and do a better job of, of, uh, of, of making these as entertaining as I possibly can. And, and I, I I'm going to, uh, hopefully I'm going to pick some music. I haven't done that yet. So hopefully the jam that comes on now and the jam you heard at the beginning uh, was pretty good, but you know, who knows? It might not have been. Um, I don't, you know, Pete's got these sign offs where he like does this thing, this whole ramp up where he thanks himself. And he, (laughs) I'm just kidding. He didn't thank himself. He thanks you guys for listening. He, He thanks me for being some title that he gave me. He thanks drew for, uh, being our business manager. And, and then he tells you to, to, that he hopes you win all your photos. And I thought, well, how the heck am I going to sign off all of these things that I do? And I thought about phrases that mean something to me. And I, I, I couldn't really think of anything that didn't sound kind of corny. One of my favorite sayings ever is that, that I heard uh, coaching, and I think it's good, is, uh, is uh, being a champion is not a sometimes thing. It's an all the time thing which is way too corny for this podcast. And so now that you've heard me say it, I, I can't do that again. It just feels like this is a very unique time that we're all in. It's a very unique time that this podcast uh, idea was, uh, you know, was born, I, I guess you, you could call it. It's been an idea, but it's obviously the, this is the first run of it. So it's been born here and, and during this very confusing time, I think, for a lot of people and scary time and uh, frustrating time and uh, uh, lots of things. And, and, and I think that, like it's given me a little bit of perspective on life on what's actually important and what really matters. And, and, uh, and, and it's also going to allow me, I think to come up with a, with a sign off. It's gonna be pretty simple and pretty easy and, and, and basic and, and moving forward. I think it'll be one that uh, I can say and, and always mean. And, and so we'll try it here. And if it doesn't work, we'll fire it and we'll come up with something funnier and sexier. But uh, for right now, I think we'll just, we'll just go with, I'm so thankful to be here, and I'm thankful that you were here with me. I need to know everything, who and the what and the where, I need everything. Trust me, I hear what you're saying, but I like it's new what you're telling me. I'm curious, George, I hop in the Porsche, there's five on a horse, I'm ready for war, I'm coming for throws to turn to a ghost, I need to know everything. Now you be surprised at the info you get is by letting them talk, so I'm letting them talk. Gotta keep quiet, maneuver in signs to let them in.